Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I'm with Roman Sivkin, who's in New York as usual on a, on a hot day. And uh, we're we're thinking about hot weather a bit here. We're we're looking at uh, you know one of my favorite novels that I think um, isn't as well known as it should be. It's called The Sheltering Sky, and it's written by a truly amazing eccentric uh, man named Paul Paul Bowles, who should be, I think. Uh, far more well-known. Um, the novel was written in 1949. And Paul Bowles, as I said, is is um, the kind of person you just don't meet anymore. He was both uh, a novelist and a composer, uh, and also somebody who spent uh, almost his entire life living as an expatriate in, um, in Tangiers, in Morocco. And, um, you know, Roman Paul Bowles actually was born in Queens. So he- really? uh, yeah, so he was he was born in Jamaica, Queens, so mm. not not too far from where you are now. Um, and you know, one of the fascinating things about him, as I mentioned, is the fact that he, uh, before writing a book, he was a classical composer. And to give you a sense of like, you know, we're not talking about somebody who just sort of like, oh, by the way, um, you know, composed uh, a few rhymes. Um, Leonard Bernstein, um, the great Leonard Bernstein, who's from our neck of the woods, Roman, born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, Mm. um, his conducting debut in New York in 1943 was a Paul Bowles opera. Get out! Yes, called The Wind Remains, and it was based on a a a surreal text by the great Spanish socialist writer uh, Federico Garcia Lorca. Um, And I, I'm, I was looking through a biography of uh, Bernstein because I remembered they had a bit of a friendship. And so this is Bernstein in 1977, towards the end of his life. And this is what he said about, um, about the music capabilities of Bowles. He said that Bowles had a genuine gift, a highly original sense of how to modernize traditional materials. He had done the same thing with words in his precise and quasi-Victorian way of presenting the primitive and the shocking. I have learned a lot from him. Copeland, Aaron Copeland, who uh, was a friend also of Paul Bowles, still refers to the Bowles style that crops up now and then in my music. So this is not only a, a massive person in literature, American literature. He has influenced arguably one of probably the greatest American conductor of all time. And I think somebody who also is a, has made some great music. Um, so, so this is the guy that, um, uh, like I said, I don't think is as well known. Sometimes associated with the beat writers, mostly because he had his base in Tangier in Morocco, and people like uh, Ginsburg, Kerouac, and and William Burroughs would come and visit and enjoy the uh, the the opportunities of hashish and various other things in Morocco at the time. Right. <laughs> um, so this particular book, um, he went to North Africa on a commission to actually write the book. And he traveled through the Sahara, um, you know, what, what were then French colonial lands. Um, and so, so the book is something I stumbled upon when I was living in South America years ago. And so... You know, Roman, it, it really imprinted on my mind this idea of of traveling and the difference between being a traveler uh, and a tourist. And, you know, I was living with some British expats in, in Quito in Ecuador, and we were amazed at this book because, you know, once you've traveled a little bit, um, you start to really understand some of the terrain that he was mapping out. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, that's a wonderful introduction, Rob, because I, I, I knew he was a composer. I just didn't realize he had such stature to begin with even yes. before he wrote this novel. Uh, I thought he was just, you know, kind of a minor composer and that turned to writing. Um, but uh, thank you for enlightening me that. That's that's really wonderful to hear. In fact, I, as I was reading this novel, it struck me how, uh, no pun intended, how well composed it was. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's it's um, you could you can almost tell that it's a, a musician wrote this because it's like a it's just beautifully put together um, in an almost musical way in terms of you know like a, a sonata has a form of course every novel has a form too but you know this this is a very 
well, it's got three, four parts, something like that, and it's very structured in, in such a way that it's, it reminded me of some sort of a composition, a musical composition. Absolutely. And, and um, I should also add, before I kind of turn away from his bio, is that his wife, Jane Bowles, also is somebody who deserves perhaps her own podcast. She was an yeah. incredibly distinguished uh, woman who wrote uh, uh, novels and playwrights as well. Um, tragically uh, died uh, when she was in her 40s. Uh, I think she had some trouble with, with booze. Um, but she is, um, I think, you know, somewhat the, the inspiration for the, uh, the character of Kit Mm. Uh, in, in the novel. And, and so so maybe, Roman, you can kind of, um, for those who haven't read the book, maybe kind of set up the um, the story sure. here a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, it's, it's definitely a travel book. And it's funny that you read it while, when, while you were traveling, and I read it while I was traveling just recently. So it's uh, it's a great book to take for you with you on the road, uh, though it's a bit of a cautionary tale. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yeah, travel, travel gone slightly wrong, or maybe more than slightly wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, but but it starts off as as you know, these two Americans, um, Kit and Port Morrisby. They're married. They've been married for twelve years at this point, um, and they they set off. It's after the war, and they they're kind of trying to. At least the, 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 the male character, the, the husband, Port, he's really pushing to get away from the horrors of the war, to get away from the Europe uh, and from any kind of European influence. Um, though, I noticed, by the way, and maybe this is something we'll talk about later on, it doesn't seem like he was in the war because uh, it, the novel mentions at one point that uh, you know, they spent the war years in South America uh, and, and elsewhere. So for no, some he, reason, even though yeah. he was young, young enough to be conscripted, he did not participate. I, I agree. And it would not fit his character, somebody who, who has avoided all attachments of every kind. Well, that and also because he, the, the character in the novel uh, is wealthy. Uh, he mentions that his father, once his father died, he didn't have to work anymore. So, mm. And the the at one point he says, you know, Something about uh, remembering the view of the reservoir in Central Park, which means he lived somewhere, and then some of some of his friends lived on the Upper East Side. So Upper East Side is a very wealthy area of Manhattan. Uh, you don't live there unless you're, you know, uber wealthy, um, and especially if you have a view of the reservoir, that means that you know you've you're at the tippity top uh, of New York society. But in any case, they're 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 they have this adventurous spirit, both of them. Both of them are very adventurous, and they they've traveled through everywhere. So now they go to, he he convinces Kit, his wife, to go to Africa. He almost fools her, almost like um, a little bit deceptive. He shows her some photographs, some pretty photographs, and he doesn't tell her that the area has been has been basically sealed off for travelers, for tourists. It's, it, you know, the State Department, whoever, whatever authority says, don't go there right now. Things are not very clear as far as tourism goes. We don't know. We can't be responsible for you. Just avoid that area. So he hides that fact from Kit, who, who thinks she's going to go to some oasis and, you know, she's she's packed her bags with evening gowns and, and you know, pretty clothes and jewelry. And so... So they to, they get to Africa, uh, crossing the Mediterranean. They have a friend, an American friend, with them, Tunner, uh, who creates a lot of tension uh, right away. Already, you can notice this. Uh, by the way, right away, there's hints of trouble to come throughout the novel. There's right away, there's little hints of of something brewing, uh, and again, beautifully placed by Paul Bowles. Uh, not they don't stick out or anything like that. Just you just know suddenly. Your, your hairs bristle a little bit. You're like, hmm, what's going on here? What's going to happen? And so they get to get they get to some some dusty towns and they they spend time in cafes, you know, with Tunner and and these these uh, not very comfortable accom accommodations. Um, right away, it's definitely not Europe. Um, uh, right away, we have uh, Arabs and they're portrayed as both. Very, very, very foreign, um, and uh, and you know the other, and also uh, friendly in a the way. They they come they're very helpful in a lot of situations. Um, 
but there's a there's a d- distinct feeling of some sort of a French colonial past where there's you know the foreigners and the and the and the locals are, are um, there's always some sort of a tension there, um, and so they start traveling and they go deeper south. Uh, along the way, they meet a strange, very strange couple, the Lyles. Um, in their Mercedes car, they just been driving around North Africa everywhere. I guess the lady is it's a it's a it's a mother and son uh, couple. Um, that's very strange. That take a very strange turn. We learn later on uh, about their relationship. But in any case, so they meet they meet this couple um, who are very disagreeable characters you know the, the mother is always just you know complaining about the locals you know bitching about all the accommodations you can't get a decent cup of tea blah 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 um so they they try to stay away from them and meanwhile their friend tunner the, the other the third american um is causing some issues because he's kind of attracted to kit the wife of you know port and what we have almost in the first 50 pages is we have uh, both Port and Kit sleeping with other people. So Kit sleeps with Tunner in a, in a drunken night. And Port sneaks away at one point from the, their hotel and sleeps with a local Arab girl. So they both cheat on each other almost from the get-go. And, and that's, that sets their courses in, you know, in, some, in, in some sort of um, irrevocable way of the, them, them separating eventually in, in some sort of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then and, they keep traveling further south. Yeah. You know, that that's um, th- this first part of the book, which you, you set up really, really well. And, and uh, they, they arrive. I, I don't know if they name the city, but it would seem to be Algiers. It seems maybe somewhat vague. I'd have to go back and, and, and note that. But yeah, I think I think they do name it. But it is, it is Algiers. The movie, by the way, was filmed in Morocco. What I've read about it. So, oh, is that so? Okay. It doesn't matter because, like you pointed out in your introduction, there were no national borders at the time. There was no independent Morocco, no independent Algiers. It was all right. French colonial land. Right. So, and and the French would the French referred to that entire series of colonial nations as the Maghreb. The Maghreb. So that, yeah. So that's what all of that was, but. You know, the, when I started reading the the beginning, they they arrive and and they're you know they're at a cafe in maybe Algiers or something, and they're drinking you know Pernod and all this sort of stuff, and they're having these uh, somewhat oblique conversations. I, I immediately started thinking about um, uh, the sun also rises um, with mm-hmm. the American expatriates in in Spain, and I, and I remember you and I both read that book early on. And I remember having a conversation with you at some point, and I think we both had the same impression. We were teenagers or whatever, and you, you're you reading about these American expats in Spain. And I knew I wanted to live abroad. You know, I was like, that that's that's what writers do. That's what, mm. you know, uh, bohemians do. Right. And I remember those conversations um, in the Hemingway book. I, I remember just thinking there's some mystery adult kind of thing. And I but we, I think we chatted about that, that I couldn't quite understand it as a 15 year old, this, this, this sense of experiencing the world, experiencing life and relationships and whatever and travel. But I knew there was something really profound about it. And, and I get the sense of that too. It, it makes me harken back a little bit to, uh, to that book. And well, I'm glad you mentioned Hemingway because it, yeah. it, it, it also recalls to my mind, the way Hemingway wrote that book, this, well, and actually many of his books, uh, not, not all, but many of his books, uh, you know, there's the iceberg theory of literature yeah. where, where basically, I guess, pioneered or maybe developed, maybe not pioneered, but developed by Hemingway, where he leaves out more than he says. And I remember reading The Sun Also Rises in high school yeah. uh, and thinking, what is going on? Something <laughs> right. is definitely going on, but adult stuff, told, adult yeah. stuff, or yeah, yeah I, that's yeah. what we put it down to. But it's actually not adult stuff; it's just stuff, uh, you know. Uh, so it 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 particularly reminded me of that because I was in, in my travels in Sweden. I was on a train from from um, coming back from Copenhagen after a long day of sightseeing and having fun in Tivoli Gardens and whatnot. And the, uh, a big party, I was coming back to Malmo, Sweden, where we were staying at a guest house, and there was a big party of Swedes 
uh, some more than tipsy than others, you know, but definitely all very tipsy, uh, you know, rushed into our train car and one of them sat across from me and I was wearing my, um, my uh, Bartleby the Scrivener t-shirt. I would prefer not to, you know, with the words I would prefer not to written on the t-shirt. Um, and so we got into a conversation about, uh, about what does that mean? And I tried to explain the Melville short story to him, but I failed miserably. I, because the guy was kind of a, he was, um, he was slightly less tipsy because he was actually a manager and the, the, the other people were workers. So, uh, he, I guess he had to sort of show some sort of decorum. So he didn't, he wasn't completely drunk, but he was definitely tipsy and he was dressed well. And I was trying to explain to him that it's a story of wall street, you know, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. And it really, I was just failing tremendously. Uh, I, I, I confused myself. Yeah. So he was very confused as well, and I was trying not to step on his toes because he was definitely uh, a you know, wealthy Swede. Um, so I was trying not to be too, um, you know, too proletarian about it. <laughs> uh, and so that night I got back, and thank God for the Gutenberg project. I downloaded on my phone the short story. I reread it avidly because it's just, it, it, to my mind, uh, especially after rereading it, it's probably the best short story I've ever read. Uh, Hemingway's The Three Killers coming close but uh but this i i really really it it boggles the mind the story and and i was trying to sort of make sense of it after i read it and i realized that what the reason why it is so so profound is because it actively not passively but actively resists interpretation uh, because as soon as you start putting some sort of interpretation on it it's it just it gives you the finger and slips away um, because, you know, just not it. That's not it. I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to, repeating over and over again. And it's Melville's way of saying fuck you to the critics who crashed his previous novel and in general just you know, didn't like him that much. Um, but it was what a finger. I mean, what what a short story. And tied to the iceberg theory of literature, there's a lot of things that are not said there. So that it it, it almost screams for interpretation, like, what does it mean? You know, you want to make sense of it. But you can't really, and that's its magic. That's why it's such a great story. And Hemingway had a similar approach, um, where you're like, "What does it mean? What are they talking about?" Um, and I think Paul Bowles, uh, at least the book starts that way. A lot yeah. of, I think yes. Paul Bowles is a little bit different because he is oh, such yes. a penetrating psychological observer of his own consciousness, uh, of others, people's, and women's. I mean, his treatment of Kit. In this book has really uh, opened my eyes to the way I'm, I mean maybe I'm I'm a male obviously I don't know but he writes about female psychology uh, very deeply I, I believe I mean he's just I, really, I, you know kid, I, is I, real, kid is the real hero of this book or heroine of this book you know I I I agree and I I was thinking to myself you know it, it, again this book was written in 1949 and I'm thinking you know kid is almost like a kind of feminist hero here, and I use the word hero, it's actually not the appropriate word, but um, maybe just to, to say a, a, a strong, independent, unpredictable, mm-hmm. uh, nuanced portrayal of a woman. Now, however, having said that, in our current cultural environment, I think a male author that tries to uh, inhabit the world of a female character, um, I, I I suspect there'd be pushback. I I believe, of course, that the the creative writer, the fiction writer, that's his job to to oh, imagine absolutely. imagine yeah. the worlds and lives of people that um, are nothing like him. And in well, fact, that's we, we, that's his job. And if we don't do it, if our artists don't do it, then we are at a great loss because we have to reach. We have to reach for the other, especially if the other is a different gender, a different color, a different religion. We have to reach because if we don't reach, we're isolated. And then the other is truly menacing and and, and foreign. And if we don't reach, however misguided our reaching can be, I mean, it can be, it can be misguided. It can be done badly. Uh, and we should criticize that. We should point that out. But we shouldn't forbid it. I mean, we shouldn't frown upon it as a society. I think that's a completely wrong approach. I mean, so we started with cultural appropriation. Now we're going to go to gender appropriation. I mean, no, no, no. Well, right. we have well, to reach. We, totally. And, and this is because we live in a world where I suppose identity politics is, um, is, is, is the true ideology now that, um, 
you know, other well, ideologies like Marxism or these things have absolutely. fallen. Absolutely, we have to we have to look past ideologies. I mean, the totally. the, the the awakened people, the, the artists, the the people who uh, think carefully about their environment and about their world. I think we have to we have to do our thing. We can't absolutely. be we can't be censored. You know, I, we, we can't be criticized, and if the, and we have to think about the criticism. Absolutely, especially if it's valid. Um, and we have to uh, accept a diverse point of you know, diverse points of view, but we have to do our thing. We have to be creative and and you know reach out to other psyches, to other ways of of, of being. And and you know I I would also add, speaking of I suppose uh, this this sort of lens is um, particularly after our conversation a few podcasts earlier with Josh Calvo and his 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 look at. Um, Arabic literature. And we also started talking a little bit about Orientalism with uh, Edward Said. Um, it, it's, it's hard not to think about the idea of Orientalism a bit with uh, any book with Westerners in the Arab world, particularly when you start getting into like, you know, Bedouins and camels in the desert. Um, right. but, but it feels so... Uh, this is such a, a a nuanced betrayal of of particularly these three American individuals, um, and it I I almost would argue it's really not about it's about the psychologies of these three individuals and particularly the the married couple um, than it is about North Africa. I think mm. the the landscape is described beautifully because how can you not bring in the desert as a character, anybody who's been to the desert. Well, I mean, the sheltering sky is the title, right? I, of and course. The, the sky is described in various ways. Uh, by the way, beautiful, uh, I mean, amazing landscape descriptions in this book, yes. uh, just on point. And I I, I, I didn't li live in North Africa. I've never been to, actually, I've been to North Africa, sort of, kind of. I've been to the Negev Desert, which is now part of Egypt, uh, in the, the tippity top of North mm -hmm. Africa. Um, and I lived in Jerusalem for many years as a child, and I, you know, I, I remember hearing the muezzin calls. They were just down the street from me, basically, and I would go hiking in the hills and through various Bedouin encampments and and, and Palestinian villages, and I would, you know, just as a kid, very innocently, would walk right through uh, an Arab village, just you know, eyeing everything, googling and googling with my eyes meeting, not. <laughs> I would Google, uh, goggling at everything, I guess is the word. Ogling, that's the word. Um, <laughs> God, goodness gracious. Um, and so it, the descriptions here of the landscape uh, felt familiar to me and, 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 and right. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? They, they felt right, um, the Arab cultures described here. Um, but just to continue the, the – so that, we, so that you know, we have the complete picture of the book. So yes. once they cheat on each other – their their fates seem to be sealed, um, yet at the same time you can you can tell that they love each other in a very strange way. Import uh, struggles. He struggles with his love for Kit. He's not sure exactly how they're going to continue as a married couple. They're basically the problem here is they have diametrically opposed aims uh, in life. Um, uh, Kit, Kit is more of a you know, she's more of a, I'll just do whatever, you know, the husband wants me to do or I, but I'd rather be in more comfortable surroundings. This is your trip port. She keeps telling him, this is your thing. I'm just here, you know, to support you. Um, so they, but at the same time, while they have these diametrically opposed aims, they also need each other to fully enjoy life, at least in the beginning, you know, um, they, they seem to be the yin and the yang of a, of a whole. Uh, but slowly and surely, they 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 get this psychological separation, and what happens is they travel further south. Is um, the landscape becomes more stark and more harsh and hotter. They get closer to the Sahara Desert, and when they enter the Sahara Desert, things truly fall apart. Um, Port gets ill with typhoid. Um, this wonderful descriptions of his illness and his state of mind, this, this phantasmagorical descriptions of, you know, dimensions colliding in his head as he's about, he's basically dying and he's, he does die uh, pretty miserably and alone in a room because even though Kit, 
when Port gets sick, she really steps up to the plate. I mean, she really becomes a strong, you know, a very strong character and, and, and helps Port as much as she can. They, they get to a town where there's no hotel that they can stay in because... Until she afraid. abandoned him, though. <laughs> well, but wait a second, wait a second, right? She, 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 she does abandon him, but only for, only for a few days or actually more like a day because she just goes crazy because they're this tiny little room in a, in a, a French, uh, French encampment uh, hospital, right? It's not really a hospital. It's just a really tiny little hut. Yeah. yeah, but it's really a tiny hut, really. It's a one-room hut with like a tiny window. And so she spends a lot of time there uh, giving Port his uh, you know, anti-fever medication, feeding him, um, doing her best. I mean, she really did her best for him. But, but also, you you have to admit that the during this period, she starts to really own up to the fact that she's starting to disengage. And there's a point where, you know, towards the end, um, Port, his hand searches for her hand and and she just refuses to give it. And she know it's it's petty and 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 selfish. and um and and maybe this is part of her trying to establish an independence, perhaps knowing full well he's going to pass away. Um, but I I would just hesitate to have people come away with the idea that she was just, you know, the doting wife. No, uh, no, no. No, absolutely not. She was not. far more complex than that. I mean, remember, absolutely. But remember, she's also uh, relying on her husband a lot uh, because they're traveling in a very strange land, uh, far from any kind of, you know, civilization as they know it. And so she, there's a lot of fear involved. First of all, Port, in his little philosophical digressions here and there, uh, admits to he's 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 fearful. A lot of things, especially his relationship with Kit, is fearful about how it's going to continue. He's um, he's got these very existential thoughts about life in general. And have you noticed, by the way, that um, on his excursions, well, you know, he's still alive, and he goes out. Uh, when the sun goes down a little bit, so it's not so hot, and he goes out on these hikes by himself, he tends to go by a, a strange Arab person, Arab old man. There's three of them, or three or four of them that show up like that in a very strange, bizarre circumstances. First of all, Kit and him meet somebody who's shaving his or, is, or trimming his pubic hair, yes. <laughs> you know, in some isolated spot. And then there's another Arab, old Arab man who's sitting down and he's wrapped in rags and, and Port is like wants to talk to him, but he's afraid. And then he thinks maybe he's got some sort of a disease, so he runs away from him. So these, these weird um, weird symbols of something or other that uh, show up as these old Arab men by themselves in the wilderness that they pass and, and wonder about. Um, but then... Uh, the fear, the fear is there for both Kit and him, and I think as as Port is dying now, that fear seems to be leaving Kit. She's like she suddenly feels almost freed. Absolutely, now, Absolutely. That, that, Tunner, that. Tunner, they they leave Tunner behind for a while, right? And then he shows up again towards right when Port dies. He shows up again, and she spends the night with him. Now, whether they sleep together or not, meaning have sex together is not clear because they just lie together in the sand dune and that's all we are that's all we know so it's not clear whether they sleep together i doubt it because kit right from the moment that she cheated on her husband she's been feeling extraordinarily guilty about it and not good about it she has very very mixed feeling towards tunner she doesn't really love him he doesn't love her either it's more of a conquest for him and he says so in the book at some point yep yep um so there's no love there it's just kind of this weird you know thing that happened while they travel because of their tensions, you know, the, the, the marital tensions. Um, I, I, I do want to, um, cause you, you set it up rather nicely trying to delineate their different point of views. And, and there's a paragraph actually that, that does that really, really well. And, and they, together they go on a walk in the evening and they go to the edge of town and they look off into the desert. <clears throat> and, uh, the, the narration is, um, it was such places as this, such moments that he loved meaning port, above all else in life. She knew that. And she also knew that he loved them more if she could be there to experience them with him, just as you right. pointed out. Um, but then, and although he was aware that the very silences and emptinesses that touched his soul 
terrified her. He could not bear to be reminded of that. So, you know, he he wants to keep pushing further into the into the abyss. And, and so you mentioned he's afraid, but um, th- there is a, a driving sense of yeah of, of finding his destiny perhaps it's almost, it's almost a demonic drive he's like he yes. at some point at one point he he uh, he gets he gets his passport stolen uh but actually by by this Lyle character the, the disagreeable uh, mother and son duo um and he, and the 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 local french lieutenant who's responsible for the area is like oh we found we found your passport it's coming tomorrow Tunner is going to bring it uh, and so as soon as he hears that, because he's been trying to get his passport back, I mean, he really wanted to get it back. Suddenly he wants to run away. Suddenly yeah. he's like, no, we got to catch the bus to Ga, to El Ga'a, which is even further down, further south into the Sahara. He's like, and he, he, he makes Kit pack really quickly and they just jump on this bus. And that's when he starts getting ill. And really, and really goes downhill. But he, he runs away from getting his own passport back. So what's going on here? I mean, this is a, it's it's a it's a demonic. Uh, maybe it's the wrong word to use, but it's some sort of a weird drive. Yeah. Uh, for him to keep going into the heart of darkness, you know, to, to co-opt uh, Conrad's phrase. Totally. And and the you know the French uh, military officers who occupy the various posts. You know, at one point one of them says, you know, I'm the the chef de poste, and and I need to see your passports because if I don't see your passports, you you have really have no identity. And right. so I think what you're getting at is, yeah, he 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 was fine moving beyond that kind of stuff. Well, um, maybe that's maybe you pointed out the. The, the main reason, maybe he's trying to shed his identity. Yeah. You know, you know I, I also think if we're thinking about other novels, one of the novels that has to be considered with this one is um, Albert Camus and The Stranger, mm-hmm. um, which was written just seven years earlier and was, you know, a massive international book. And of course, um, uh, Paul Bowles probably would have read it in the original French. And so, when I was reading the opening, one of the opening scenes where um, it's it's at night and Port wanders off looking for, maybe looking for uh, the, the, the pleasure quarter, and he wanders off into the edge of town and he starts to be followed by this, this Arab man in the shadows. And I, I, you know, I started thinking like, no, turn around, you know, this is, you know, it's on the edge of town and he keeps going further and further into the... Um, into the um, the local neighborhoods, and I, I couldn't help but feeling like this was echoing some of the uh, the beginnings of or some of the uh, that particular novel. And you'd think that any novel set in Algeria in the 1940s would would almost have to make some homage to uh, right right to, to the stranger. So um, readers who are familiar with that book will will feel maybe um, somewhat disingenuously comfortable at the beginning thinking, oh, I've, I've been in this terrain before. But as you pointed out, Paul Bowles uh, is a unique artist and, and has his own agenda. Um, well, I mean, it, yeah, because it really turns, it really, doesn't it turn when, when they, when they, uh, when Port gets sick and gets bedridden. And uh, by the way, those, some of those passages of, of him, of his interior thoughts as he's really wracked with high fever and you know typhoid and and basically very close to death are are magical to me. I, I, I thought it was very very interesting the way Bowles describes it because how would how would he know? I yeah. don't know, maybe maybe just it's not just a feverish kind of imagination. It's really it's something combined maybe maybe with Camus type of existentialism. Yeah. Uh, with 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 this this um, feverish, literally fe- feverish uh, yeah. thoughts, uh, but it's combined with this you know, very down to the bone existentialist thoughts. So, yep. very curious combination uh, that really, really, I, I really liked. Right. And, and again, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's it's again, it's worth pointing out that you know at that uh, um, that Bowles. Uh, was really a, a Euro-American writer at this point in time. So he, he'd spent time in the 30s in Paris, actually, um, with people like Aaron Copeland. And, and so is really grounded uh, in, a, in a European point of view, the way many American artists right, write, but, were. But then later, right, he spent 
the rest of his life living in North Africa then? He spent his entire life. Um, so his, I think his life before he moved permanently to Tangiers in the late 40s was a New York-Paris kind of access. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what I'm saying. When, when he, um, his writing definitely uh, changed a little bit as he, as he became part of the landscape and, and a sort of a, you know, a citizen of, of North Africa, so to speak. Um, yeah. It, it, I know I read, uh, I read a bunch of his other short stories and, and it's, it's, they're different from, from this book. This book, like you said, is very, it does have that European American grounding, um, but there's hints, there's hints of the wildness and the strangeness of what's the, you know of Paul Ball's existence in North Africa in Kit as 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 Port dies, and she gets completely unmoored from from her previous identity. It to me, this is the most fascinating part of the book, really, because what is happening to Kit? She she runs away. She runs away even deeper. She 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 hitches a ride in a in a in a caravan, a camel caravan. She is raped slash made love to by right away by two Arabs, you know, the, the leaders of this caravan, and she's kind of okay with it for a little bit. You know, she just goes with it. She she, she goes stops, with it. Yeah. She she goes. She stops having she stops having a consciousness of her actions and she just acts. Yes. And so and then she starts losing that fear. She she becomes uh part of a harem uh, uh yet she you know she's she's okay with that for a while but then when she decides to leave she goddamn leaves she finds a way to escape yes um but her the way she thinks through these things or maybe even not think because she's doing a lot of not thinking i noticed also very interestingly there's a lot of discussion about time and timelessness because of the landscape, uh, the big sky, the sheltering sky, there's a there's a sense of timelessness in the Sahara in the desert. And when Kit, when when Port dies, and she decides to not tell the local French authorities about it, and just kind of slinks away and hitches a ride with this caravan, she first goes into she finds a pool on her way out of, the t of town, and she she strips naked, she jumps into the pool. Uh, she comes out of it, and then she's looking for her watch, and it's not, not there. Either it's stolen, and she just can't find it in the dark. And she goes, oh, never mind. I don't need it anymore. So she leaves time behind. She leaves not only her identity behind, her European-American identity, but really she leaves um, time behind and, yeah. and enters into this weird, timeless existence where for days on end, for instance, she's locked in a room um by this guy who thinks of her as his fourth wife you know and she just spends days on end with, with no books no nothing just in a room in a windowless room i mean that's that's isolation that's torture for a lot of people yet she survives it she doesn't really think of it as torture because there's no time for her she's unmoored from existence in a way um she's She's just she she dresses like an Arab. She's put in you know, she she loses her European clothes. Um, she hangs on to her valise. That's the only thing she kind of hangs on to. Uh, she's still, I mean, she's still kid. She's not totally whacked out, but she's definitely a little. She's going she's going a little off the rails as far as mental health goes. Yeah, right? I mean, she's changed. I mean, we, yes. we you you don't go through that experience. She's transformed. Um, Absolutely, you, you're, you're right. And, and do you recall the little subtle moment? But um, before they go to the final town, where um, Port, you know, his his illness really Spot. deteriorates. Spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's still resisting in in trying to hold on to the Western identity, and and she orders that one one night in the hotel. She orders scotch, and 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 she gets mm -hmm. her player cigarettes. And, you know, Port kind of dismisses it as, you know, she, she just continues to try to reassert um, a, a kind of Western civilized approach. Um, right. Or, or I should say the accoutrements of, of Western civilization. Um, right. But, you know, one thing I, I, I want us to spend a lot of time chatting about, and this, this will dovetail a bit into your recent travels, which I want to hear about, is... So the, the, the famous quote, or at least it's famous to me, because this was the quote that in South America, among the travelers I was with, we all would repeat to ourselves, almost like a kind of scripture. And um, this is the, the quote by Port, 
um, or I should say the narrator's description of how Port makes a distinction between being a traveler and being a tourist. And this this is just great stuff um, and worth examining. So um, Port, he did not think of himself as a tourist. He was a traveler, period. The difference is partly one of time, he would explain. Whereas the tourist generally hurries back home at the end of a few weeks or even months, the traveler belonging no more to one place than to the next moves slowly over mm. periods of years from one part of the earth to another. And so, again, this this was to us a kind of standard of travel that we were in awe of because there's a certain like to to do that level of traveling, you have to you have to cut ties and, and you have to both reap the rewards and face the consequences of, of cutting ties. Uh, and, and the idea that you would belong no more to uh, the Sahara as you would to New York or Paris is a, an intriguing, though, probably, I mean, for me, it would be actually frightening. I, I think I'm a, I, I, a person who's a tourist, uh, but hopefully maybe an intelligent tourist. Um, but I'm not sure I'm a traveler. I think that's a, a next level experience that um, it yeah. would scare me a bit. Yeah, well, it is It is initially scary, um, absolutely. Uh, it's hard to get that initial move, the initial push to do something like that. Uh, I, I, I yearn for that. I, I want that. I seek that because... I guess I'm a wandering Jew in a sense. You know, I, I've, I've never lived in a place for more than a decade, except for New York now. I've been here for 15 years and, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm ready to go somewhere else. I, so I think maybe it's a, it's a matter of the way you grew up. You know, you've, you've, you have a sense of place. And um, interestingly, just to, because the people have been asking me about Arne Ness and this, this Norwegian philosopher that I discovered in, in Oslo when I was in Oslo just a week ago. Um, I, I serendipitously stumbled onto a, a bookstore that I wasn't looking for. I was looking for a different bookstore, uh, but I, I got into this one and because that one was closing anyway. And I found I was looking for something to take back to me, you know, with me to New York, something from Norway, from Oslo that was kind of, you know, Norwegian in, in, in its essence. And, uh, luckily this bookstore had an English section and, uh, I was looking at novels at first, and I found some interesting, very interesting novels that uh, I didn't know about, like uh, Roy Jacobson, uh, I believe, wrote about um, Finland very interestingly and how Russia invaded Finland after World War II. So I almost got that book, but I'm like, eh, I can get a novel, the novel anywhere, really. Um, and I wanted something particularly Norwegian. Uh, and so as I was kind of despairing and I had to leave at that point, and I, I, I just saw the, out of the corner of my eye a book. Uh, the, the title really caught my attention because The Ecology of Wisdom. I mean, how can it not catch your attention? Yeah, <laughs> The Ecology of Wisdom by this guy Arne Ness, N-A-E-S-S. And um, I, I, I started reading it right there in the bookstore, and and right away I felt an incredible attraction to that kind of thinking because first of all, yeah, he's he's very uh, suggestive but not prescriptive. There's no prescription about how to how to live in the world. Type of deal. You hear the rules, you know, type of deal. Or he's a list of things you must do. Yeah. Um, he's very inclusive. He loves diversity. He's the founder of deep ecology, which is a very different movement from environmentalism. Um, I, I urge I, I urge people if you're interested in, at all in, in how your environment is, you know, how you live in your environment. Because one of the points that Ness makes is that um, we are not isolated egos. We live, we are us, meaning the person you, you know, within your skin plus your environment, and you can't separate the two. That they're one, really. Uh, so we, you know, we, we usually think of ourselves as living somewhere as just people, but you know, really, for instance, it's you you and Portland and your particular Beaverton environment and your particular environment as you walk through an old growth forest over there in Portland somewhere. And me, I'm, I'm, I'm me plus my Astoria environment, my urban environment or my Central Park environment that I go to sometimes, you know, and so it's you and, and whatever your environment happens to be. And that's just a wonderful way of thinking that um, provided me with ways of, of Going beyond my anxiety uh, and stress about their environmental, uh, you know, 
crisis and catastrophe that we're facing right now. Because before my trip and before I discovered RNNS, I was very uh, anxious. I was hearing all these stories about climate you know, change and 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 how 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 spe- entire species are just disappearing. Uh, and just just in my daily life, um, even trivial, relatively well, maybe not trivial, but you know, they're something that people normally don't think about. You know, roadkill. When I would drive around in my my van, my work van, and see roadkill, I would just be sad, you know, depressed. Uh, some animal just had to give up its life because we need a road, goddammit. We need to you know ship over there and drive over there and get over there. And as human, as the human population what doubled in the past 30, 50 years, something like that. I mean, doubled in such a short amount of time. We are eating up more and more of the planet, and there's less and less space for other, other things. And I'm not even saying animals, because I'm including rocks and and moss and and insects and you know and everything, animate and inanimate things that are wild that are just there. Uh, of their own accord, doing their own thing. And so I was very, you know, depressed by the whole aspect and I didn't see a way out of it. I was, you know, just not, I was not in a good space. So with, with Arne Ness and my exploration of his uh, philosophy really opened up a way for me to deal with that um, by, by saying, look, live and let live should always be rule number one. We can't be judgmental about other people or shame them into doing something. That's what environmentalism does. Environmentalism says, okay, well, we'll switch the electric cars, you know. We'll do, we'll switch this. We'll eat uh, meatless burgers. Um, but at the same time, the, the pace of production and the energy used to have the, all these intelligence is, is keeping a pace. It's increasing. It's still eating up the wild. It's still eating up our environment um, in, in terms of um, making it more human, which is not good for, for humans in the end, right, as we are discovering, because <laughs> it's actually threatening our own survival. Um, so and it uh, so it really gave me a, a blueprint of how to proceed further by developing my own e- ecological philosophy, or as Ness calls it, an ecosophy. And and um, do you do you happen to know if is is has deep ecology become uh, you know a part of the environmental discussion in, in Europe at least? Or, absolutely, or, you have to you have to look yeah. for it. There, like I said, yeah. there's definitely a distinction between um, you know your plain vanilla environmentalism, which again I don't want to shame people into into thinking that it's a bad thing. It's just it's just for me it wasn't the way. For me it was. Uh, I remember George Carlin have a whole routine about how it's a white white privilege it's a righteousness thing you know save the whales save the snails you know all these saves you know they're just these little pinpricks in a big 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 problem that um are really coming from a, a source that's obviously willing you know willing a good thing it's a good thing it's you know coming from people's desire to improve things but the source is a little bit um the deeper the deeper questions are not not being addressed the deeper Solutions are not being sought because that's why that's why he called it deep ecology to distinguish it from the environmentalism movement. And so I, I, it suddenly dawned on me that here here is the blueprint. Here is the way to go forward as a human being in the 21st century uh, and in our dark, dark times. And you know, Arne Ness was very pessimistic about the near future. He was very optimistic about the uh, far future. He was he said, I'm, I'm pessimistic about the 21st century, but I'm optimistic about the next century. Um, so we have a lot of uh, a lot of ways to deal with it now. That are you have to think carefully through it. You have to um, really look around yourself, your own environment, and how you live. Um, and again, it's not prescriptive. It's not like a set of rules, like you know, get rid of your car, use less plastic, which are all good things, but. That's not the point. The point is to think through. And here's the crucial distinction, Rob. And I think I don't think I mentioned this to you before. This is something that that made me buy the book uh, pretty much after just reading a few pages, because he he talks about um, a concept from Kantian ethics. You know, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, um, who distinguished between two kinds of acts. There's a, a, a there's a moral act, and then there's a beautiful act. A moral act is when you do something that you know is right. 
You know it's right because, you know, so that's, that's why you do it. A beautiful act is when you do something that's right because you want to do it. Not because you need to do it or somebody tells you this is good for the earth and you say, ah, crap, now I have to recycle or whatever. Um, but you want to do it. Um, and so that's, for me, besides the fact that it's called the Beautiful Act, which is such a great name. You no, know, that's, that's, that's lovely. It, it really opened, it really suddenly had this, you know, moment of illumination. Um, and so I've been working ever since coming back, it's only been a week, but I've been working to sort of see what kind of beautiful acts I want to do. I, 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 I'm beginning to want to do things like that, you know, things like, you know, um, I'm going to sell my car, I'm going to you know, walk to work or bike to work or take the public transportation. I'm going to be outdoors more. It's an important element of Ness's philosophy as well. Um, and, and other things, you know, this, this, and again, each individual is different. We're all different. And we all have to think specifically about our own situation and our own environment. And I think this book, as, as I was reading it, The Sheltering Sky, particularly, the, the descriptions of the landscapes and how how the local population sort of deals with the heat of the sun, the, the rhythms of the day, of, of, of stopping in the middle of the day and sleeping in the middle of the day because of the hot sun and then, you know, traveling at night. Um, all these adjustments and, and things that have been done for centuries in that kind of land, but it's very foreign to the travelers there of Kit and Port. But they adjust slowly but surely. And then Kit really adjusts. I mean, she becomes, she joins the natives a little bit. You know, she, she sheds her identity and she, she, she develops her own, in a way, an ecosophy, uh, a way to deal with the ecological environment that she's in. Um, yes, you know, and, and I, I would sort of, again, to tie it back into the book, I, I can't speak to deep ecology. Um, I don't know much about it other than your pretty fine description. Um, but when I do think about rampant development, which I suppose is the um, is is one of the factors that has made environmentalists concerned, rightly so, is it makes me think of this again. One of the the minor themes in the book, and in a discussion that uh, Kit and Port have, is um, you know Kit uh, when they're in Algiers says. You know, the people of each country get more like the people of every other country. They have no character, no beauty, no ideals, no culture, nothing, nothing. And then Port says, uh, you're right, you're right, he said. Everything's getting gray, and it'll get grayer. But some places withstand the malady longer than you think, you'll see in the Sahara, in the Sahara here. So so there is this, um, I, the more I travel, um, you know, I... I I, like I said, I think I'm a fairly decent tourist, and I seek out what's what's exciting and different. But it's also not hard to notice how more and more cities are starting to look similar, um, very much oh, yeah. so in, in terms of um, the corporate advertising or, or glass office towers are now, um, you know, at, at first glance, you know, can you tell the difference between the skyline of Dallas, Texas, and one of the newer Chinese cities that has, you know, kind of shot up? in the last 15 to 20 years. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, dude, I mean. Well, you, this, when they get to, uh, uh, when they get to um, El Ga'a, which is a, a town, a relatively isolated town in the middle of the Sahara, uh, they only stay there very briefly because Port is sick and this, they refuse to let him into the hotel because they're afraid of the, the you know, the epidemic of typhoid. Um, but when they when they arrive, um, I forget who notices it, but maybe both Kit and Port. But they notice that this town, because it's so isolated, uh, doesn't have any European influence at all. And and as chaotic as it is, they describe it as being very um, natural looking. They really enjoy it, and it's like a different experience for them. You know, right? So, and 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 so and this is uh, you know one of the. Um one of the offshoots of you know modern tourism is this this search for authenticity you know this search for seeing seeing the un undiscovered sort of area um, and you know this this ties in a bit to it makes me think of Anthony Bourdain who um, you know incidentally enough one of his later episodes was uh, two Tangiers in Morocco and being the kind of guy he is 
he he made mention of I believe Paul Bowles and the the Bohemian writers community that um, that grew up around him essentially in in North Africa. Um, but you know I think everybody now uh, uh, who has a bit of disposable income wants to go to a place that nobody's seen before, experience a food that no one has tried before. And and so um, things are more complicated <laughs> than 1949. Yes, uh, yes. But I've, I have a great anecdote about Paul Bowles, if you want to hear it very quickly. Um, in the in the early 80s, as he was an old man already, he, he ran a creative writing workshop uh, from his place of residence or close over there somewhere. And uh, a student, you know, was reading a, a story to the class. And uh, some of the story took place at a McDonald's restaurant. And so she described some of the, you know, McDonald's, you know, you know term. She used some of the term terminology like, you know, I don't know, Happy Meal or Big Mac or something like that. So after she read the story, Paul Bowles said, well, it's very good. But um, what is a McDonald's? <laughs> you know, this is in the early 80s. It's not like he, you know, I mean, McDonald's has been around forever at that point. But in any case, so that's, totally. you know, that's kind of, that's, that's Paul Bowles. But yeah, what, what a wonderful writer. And before we go, Rob, I think we should yeah. mention the end. Yep. We should really mention the end because the end is uh, enigmatic as, as a good novel usually does have an end, end that does not end things with a big, big period, but leaves things open. Uh, uh, Kit is, is. She both wants to return to civilization and 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 doesn't. She's torn. She's completely torn. She ends up sending a telegram. She runs away from this uh, you know, jail-like environment that she was in as part of a harem, and she sends a telegram to somebody or uh, she doesn't. Even, she's not even sure who she sent it to, but eventually she's found because people are looking for her, and she's sent to, uh, I believe some French city or something like that. Anyway, she's on her way back and she's in a horrible mental state. Uh, they actually have to hold on to her so she wouldn't escape. And she, she finally gets to some, some embassy, some American embassy employee finally gets to her and they drive her to a hotel and the, the, this employee goes into the hotel to arrange things and she comes out and Kit is gone from the car. She's disappeared. She ran away. She's somewhere. We don't know where. Uh, the last paragraph is very enigmatic. It's just about a tram that passes by as she disappears. Some tram filled with blue-collar workers, you know, and then some beautiful scenery description of where the tram ends the last stop. Um, so it's a, it's really an, an enigmatic ending that's perfectly balanced, perfectly poised for this really perfectly balanced novel that, like I said, feels to me like um, a beautiful musical composition uh, with with Middle Eastern and North African overtones, you know. So you know, beautifully novel. said. Wonderfully said. And, and I'd also add um, there was a movie in 1990, Sheltering Sky, same title, and um, John Malkovich. Jeremy Irons, right? Jeremy Irons. Yeah, uh, John Malkovich plays Port. Oh, okay. I thought so, it was John. Jeremy Irons is in it too, right? I think. Uh, he might be you might be he may be. Yes. Yeah. Um, very well done. Uh, really, really. Good. I'm actually going to watch it right now after after our podcast. Oh, right <laughs> on, right on. I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah. Nice. Um, so that's all I have. Um, our next book is going to be uh, one that Roman has been uh, pushing on me for <laughs> for years. Um, it's a fan's notes by Frederick Exley, and so. Um, a cult classic, I would say. I, I was in Powell's a few weeks ago, and, and one of their staff members had written a note uh, recommending this passionately in the same passionate notes that, that you've been using, Roman. Yeah, so, no, once you read it, you'll see why. It's it's kind of like what when you recommended The Sheltering Sky. I knew about the book. I, I've seen the movie. I just never read it. And I was like, what? well, it's probably a good book, but I, I can see your passion for it now. It's, yeah. so I think you'll feel the same way about the fans' notes, I'm pretty sure. Nice. Um, so that's it. Uh, any passing uh, passing thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, no, but I urge people to um, check out on YouTube. It's called uh, Call of the Mountain or The Call of the Mountain. And it's a, a 50-minute biography uh, of Arne Ness, this philosopher I was talking about, the Norwegian. It really will um, 
will help. I think it helped me anyway to uh, understand my my place in, in the world a little bit better. And I highly recommend it. A very nice. gentle spirit who's a very careful and deep thinker as well. It's a, it's a good combo. <laughs> nice. Uh, something we need in, in our current world, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, that's it. Um, to follow Roman on Twitter, he is at Zenju. Uh, I am at Robert Fay one And uh, thank you. And we also, a shout out to our sound engineer, Heston Hoffman. Heston! Uh, who also uh, reported back on a thrilling result for the World Cricket Cup. For those of you who uh, are interested in that, I guess England uh, was the winner. So uh, congrats to England. Uh, thank you, Heston. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. See ya.